Hello. I want to do a commentary on the Scripture Central Guide to Come Follow Me done by Taylor Halverson and Tyler Griffin. These are two BYU professors, uh, one of which knows many languages and is uh, giving us great insights into the words and the root words in their original and what they mean. And uh, the other one is just the epitome of a family man from his bio on BYU. looks like he has 10 kids, five boys, five girls, and they love spending time in the mountains, playing board games, doing house projects, and being together. So in my opinion, that's the perfect man right there, uh, along with a very interesting man, and their insights are very good. And I want to comment not on a whole lot of what they say, actually. Right up front, um, he brings up, I can't remember which one is which, let's see. Tyler brings up this uh, fact that of all the chapters in the book of John, five of them deal with one night. But let's just start the video and um, I'll do my commentary in between pieces. This glare on my glasses is too much. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. This week will be John 14 through 17. So for this first episode, we're going to finish off John chapter 14, which goes with what we covered last week in John 13. So that's the experience in the upper room. And in the second episode, we'll do chapter 15, 16, and 17, a study of, of the Godhead and, and who God is. Before we dive into chapter 14, just a quick reminder, last week we covered John chapter 13, which was the beginning of the Last Supper in the upper room. And if you look at this from a, from a big perspective, from a bird's eye view, you have 13 and 14 in the upper room, then at the end of 14 he tells them, arise, let us go hence. Now they start walking through the city and then up the Kidron Valley as he discourses to them on various subjects. In verse chapters 15 and 16, you get to the top of the Kidron Valley and before entering into Gethsemane, he pauses there in chapter 17 and gives the great high priestly or intercessory prayer in chapter 17. What I wanted to point out here is if you do some simple math and count this up, you have 13 through 17, five chapters all take place within a few hours of time in a 33-year life of the Savior Jesus Christ. Five chapters out of John's total 21. We're, we're right in the neighborhood of one-fourth of his entire gospel, of everything John, who is in the Savior's inner circle, everything he could have taught us, he's putting significant emphasis on this few hours of experience with Jesus right before going into Gethsemane. And then if you add chapter 18, which is John's account of Gethsemane, and 19, his account of the, the trials and, and the crucifixion of Christ, if you add that to the mix, you're adding a few more hours of time now you're at 7 out of 21 
of John's chapters. That's one-third of the entire Gospel of John is taken up from the evening of Thursday when he goes into the Last Supper through early in the morning on Friday of the crucifixion, uh, just over a 12-hour uh, segment of Jesus' life, and we've got one-third of the time spent. So, I only pointed that out because I think we're going to see as we dive in that some of the greatest truths, some of the biggest theology that Jesus is going to share in his ministry comes at such a critical time when he's literally moments away from beginning his infinite uh, atoning sacrifice, beginning in Gethsemane. Um, even just a very small part of those chapters I'm going to spend the rest of my life talking about. So I get what he's saying and I, I, I agree about the importance of these chapters and they're incredibly weighty. And, and you look at how much time and energy and effort Jesus is putting into strengthening and buoying up his apostles at this late hour of his life when, I don't know about you, but, but when a, a huge deadline or a huge event that's going to be scary is looming, I'm, I'm not really focused on how other people are doing and how they're feeling and how I can strengthen them. I'm focused on me figuring out how I'm going to get through this, this big, terrible, or difficult event. Not Jesus. Yeah, that is truly remarkable. Christ's ability to keep focus on what he can give to those around him, even with this impending, torturous, nightmarish moment uh, that lays before him. Uh, we each give what we have to give, and clearly Christ has it all. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I think there's more there than just, oh, don't, don't be afraid, don't be troubled. I think Jesus is preaching something that he's practicing. I think he's found ways, being the Son of God, to himself not be troubled in that moment when everything in his physical mortal being would be pleading with him to be troubled, and he's not allowing his heart to be troubled at that moment. I really love this word believe because of well, several core reasons. One, its etymology in English comes from two ancient words, be, leave. So this actually is a derivation from the word love. So when we believe God, we show that we are 100% love him. We want to be in a loving relationship. As we also consider the expansive covenantal context of the word believe, it means to be in a faithful, loyal, fidelity relationship. So when he says, believe in me, he's encouraging him to think about how he and his father have been covenantally loyal and faithful to all of God's people for all time and eternity. And, there's, and Jesus is now saying, be like us. We have been loyal to you. We have shown you loved. We've believed in you. We have loved you. Brilliant. Do the same. If you believe in me and join this loving relationship, you will have eternal love. Brilliant. Really, this is the essence of the gospel. It's love. Isn't it fascinating that, that we live in a world that's 
that's providing us all kinds of causes, all kinds of doctrines and teachings, and encouraging us to believe them. Well, stop and think about it. If you believe an untruth, you now put your love and your focus and your time and your energy and your talent and your goals and your, your future vision in a direction that, that isn't going to deliver, it's not going to produce. Whereas Jesus says, and believe also in me. It's put your love, put your focus 100% on me, trust me, believe in me, and then that will cause us to act in ways that would help us to become like him. Okay, I just wanted to comment on these two things because I think this, these two comments or these two ideas are very, very good. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to the main part that I want to comment on. So he continues by saying, if it were not so, if I didn't have many mansions, many kingdoms, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Pretty powerful uh, promise. And whither I go, ye know not. So this word receive, the underlying Greek word, also comes from the word of to take. So when you take something, you it, it's an agentive action where you're doing something to acquire something. So this idea of receive has in its essence that Jesus is proactively doing something to receive you. It's not him passively just sitting around and like, oh, look at these people who showed up in my mansion. He is proactively taking you, not to uh, overstep the boundaries of your agency, but he does everything in his power to bring you along. Not to overstep the boundaries of your agency. Um, this word he used in the beginning, agentive, uh, I had to look it up, but it just means of being an agent, or how I would define that is uh, an acting principle or the acting player. And I found that really interesting that he picked up on this, that receiving can be agentive, that normally we think of the one in the receipt position as being acted upon, right? Because something is coming to them. And we think of the actor as the one sending, right? The one giving, the one sacrificing, the one out from whom proceedeth forth that which is received. This idea that he's describing in the way Jesus is preparing our mansions for us um, brings something to mind. And this is where this commentary might get 18 plus rating. This may not be for your children. If you're watching with children, it, it may be. It will depend on what kind of parent you are. Um, but I am going to reference the sexual act uh, in a reverent way, but I am going to reference it explicitly. Look, the engagement that he's describing here is highly feminine. Okay, how Christ is proactively trying to receive us. His description of Christ's role in receiving us into his kingdom sounds to me like a woman's role in getting her man to bed. And I trust no offense is taken in heaven at my so saying. The comparison I'm making between the spiritual oneness of a male heaven and a female earth and the physical oneness of a male and a female human either debases heaven to the level of sex 
or elevates sex to the level of heaven, and you as the listener will choose which. Uh, but to continue my comparison, the phallus and ejaculation typify human agency and sacrifice in every disciple, whether male or female. Uh, the most beautiful benefit to human relations by this visual comparison is that it clearly clearly illustrates that while nothing can be done to eliminate the agency of others, much can be done to move it toward sacrifice on your behalf. So we all are feminine in relation to the agency of other people. This, however, doesn't mean that we are powerless in our feminine role in relation to the agency of others. We can be proactive, agentive, and doing something to receive the gift that we would like from them, just like Christ is described here as being proactive in receiving the gift that he would like from us, which is our agency. Jesus is the perfect model of where the two gender roles become one. In relation to his father, he is 100% feminine being always in submission and a position of receiving from the Father. In relation to the world, he is 100% masculine, being always in the position of giving to the world. Okay, Anything that is giving or outward flowing is masculine. Anything that is receiving or inward flowing is feminine, speaking on an energetic level. And this comparison between the spiritually creative act between a male heaven and a female earth and the procreative or physically creative act of a male and a female human with the one which results in birth and the other which results in rebirth the parallel between these two is highly necessary to see and to understand not just because it elevates sex to a level of sanctity but also because it's it's just a very easy basic physical pointer toward our goals as disciples it it points us toward the rebirth process because the way the male and the female body interact to create birth so likewise the male heavens and the female earth the material sphere and the spiritual sphere the way these two parties interact in their marriage um, lead to our rebirth and rebirth is essentially our conversion um, every increment of rebirth is a stepping stone on our way toward exaltation, which is our goal. I digress. I love pointing out where God is interacting with us in a feminine way because dogmatically we know that God is always male. And this is purposeful. And I'll explain this in another video sometime. But because God is purposefully, dogmatically male, it can be frustrating at times for all, 
all of us, males and females, perhaps particularly for females, but all of us as children of our heavenly parents wonder where mom is. We wonder why we're not praying to her half the time. We wonder why we're not in communication or in open acknowledgement or recognition in our religious worship practices. Why, why she's behind this veil, why she's hidden. And, you know, it can be, it can be soul-rending. It can be heart-wrenching to um, experience what appears to be an absence of the divine feminine element of our point of worship, which we know doctrinally as members of Christ's Restored Church, but also we all know intuitively just as beings who are comprised of half masculine, half feminine energy poles, we, we know that there's a divine feminine element to God with which we are in relationship presently, with which we are actively interacting. And we just sense is there. And without that open acknowledgement um, of her in those interactions, it, it can lead to frustration. So I like to point out where God is interacting with us, humanity, in a feminine way. And this is, this is one way, in the way Christ is preparing us for this mansion, in the way, particularly the way Taylor describes this. Um, Christ's role, uns gegenüber, or in relation to us, or opposite, in acting opposite us, is one that fully honors agency. It doesn't seek to do away with or break our agency, but it does sort of encompass our agency. And it is going to be an active reception. It is going to um, beckon. It is going to beg and plea. It is going to um, entice. It is going to lure it is going to really use all of the tricks in its repertoire in relation to our agency to get our agency to sacrifice for god because as we use our masculine agency and sacrifice hold on my light went out all fixed as we use our masculine agency to sacrifice for God, God actually uses that to turn around and bless us. He actually uses that as sort of a, like a seed to grow a new life in us. And this new life is, that is, that is grown in us, as described in Alma 32, for example, uh, which compares our exercising of faith to a seed that is grown well what god is growing in us is a man child it's a it's a new creature in us in our bodies that has his image and his likeness and essentially you know he has sired it and so you have these two you know you have god interacting with us in a masculine way that we are 
the female role player, but then at times you also have God interacting with us in a feminine way where we are the male role player, right? It's it's a man-child. It's not just a gender-neutral child or a, a female child. It's a man-child. Because in essence, masculinity is the acting principle in a two-player relationship. And the, and the feminine role player is the passive. One, the one is acting upon and the other one is acted upon. And the human soul is comprised of both. At times we are acted upon and at times we act. And our ability to act is intended by God to be grown. And that's why it's called a man-child, that which is grown in us by God as he entices and beckons our agency to sacrifice for, for him, for his gospel, for his cause. So in the one element, we as agents unto ourselves are masculine, but in the way that God takes our sacrifice and grows and gestates something in us that is sired in his image, in that sense, we are feminine. So gender interplay um, is, is actually always happening, both genders, both gender roles on the spiritual level, on an energetic level. They're always at play and they're both simultaneously always at play. And every human soul, both male and female, interacts with every other human soul in both feminine and masculine ways. And so does heaven. Heaven interacts with all human souls collectively and individually in both feminine and masculine ways, although dogmatically heaven is only masculine and earth is only feminine. But that's just the starting point. As the relationship progresses, a masculine element in us is born or reborn and grown and gestated until it crowns with light on its head and is and enters, passes through the veil and enters the kingdom of God very, very, very much like the process of birth. You see, these two are very importantly related to each other. So you, you probably didn't mean to say all that, uh, Taylor, with that little uh, clip of yours, but that's what I heard. So on to the next clip. So this idea of we're talking about mansions, we're talking about kingdoms, keep in mind that in a gospel context, often we put all of our eggs or most of our eggs in the destination basket, this, this end goal. I, I want to go to heaven. I want to get to one of these kingdoms or to this, this mansion on high. The reality is, is that there are incredible experiences and incredible truths to be found, discovered, and enjoyed along the way. The journey, the way, the path is Christ. The destination is Christ who then turns you to the Father. It's He is in and of and through this entire process as well as the destination. That is really profound, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but we're not. We're going to talk about something in depth that's very related to this idea that 
Christ is the destination and the way. And ultimately, I would propose that the way is the destination. Um, kind of like you're headed toward a big ball of light on a thread of light. But it's they're both light. So look at the three words that Jesus uses here. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Think about the significance of him using this, this uh, precursor, I am, ego a me, this, this identity-forming um, phrase. I am, it, it, he's revealing his soul, his characteristics, his perfections, his attributes to us, and here we get three of them. I am the way. Don't think of a path. Think of me. Just do the things you've seen me do. I am the way. I am the truth. He, he exudes truth. He embodies truth. He is the truth. Think about Father Lehi's dream in 1 Nephi chapter 8. He had the straight and narrow path. There was a rod of iron, and then there was a tree and the tree was called the tree of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, so here it is again, just briefly. The path, which is Christ, brings us to the tree in Lehi's dream, which is also Christ. So Christ is bringing us to Christ. Christ helps us come unto him. He is both the prize and the coach who helps us obtain the prize. But the prize is also us discovering who we are. The prize is our exaltation. The prize is not only to know God and Jesus Christ, but to know ourselves. Because the end goal of of the doctrine of exaltation is to be joint heirs with Christ, co-equal in power and dominion and glory, and to rule and reign the way they do in the hereafter, as equals. This is an astounding doctrine of a God who shares power and who approaches his creations in a power with paradigm, because here in mortality, the only approach to power we typically see is a power over paradigm. But so our exaltation is precisely that, our exaltation. So this destination at which we are to arrive, this, this tree symbolic of the presence of the Father and Christ, is not just about us being in their presence. It's about being in our own full presence and to have the power of our presence grown to the full magnitude of theirs as co-equals in goddom. More on that in just a second. It's so exciting! Don't you just get riveted in jazz with these chapters? So this chapter is about knowing and doing, and Jesus tries to demonstrate these things. There's a couple of really interesting words. We talk about um, the way. In fact, uh, it, it's interesting, we have this word. Taylor and Tyler, Taylor and Tyler. Method. And 
The latter part of this word means way or path. We talked about Jesus being the way. Taylor, that you're breaking down. The meta means to follow or what goes after. In fact, just as a little aside, one of the great ancient Greek scientists was a man named Aristotle. His teacher had been Plato, and Plato had his teacher was Socrates. Aristotle was a great systematizer of knowledge, and he wrote a book about nature, everything you might find in nature, and the Greek word for nature is physics, so he wrote a book called Physics. Well, then he wanted to write a book about things that aren't found in physical nature. Maybe those are up in the heavens or in the ether or spiritual, and he didn't know what to call the book. So he literally called it the book that follows the book on physics or metaphysics. So if you ever hear people talk about metaphysics, that's where it comes from. The book that follows after the book on physics or the things that are in nature or physical or tangible. Look at verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me, and the words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me he doeth the works. It feels and sounds very Trinitarian. Now we get into the theological aspects of Jesus' final teachings here to his apostles, and it's profound. So let's look at the word that he used there repeatedly, in. So you saw that in verse 10, the Father in me, and the Father dwelleth in me. And then verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in This me, is the stuff the I'm excited to get into. This okay. is where now, I'm going to pause it soon and just go off. We read all of John's uh, writing here. Verse 12, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, which is an interesting concept. Father dwelleth in me, I dwell in him, but I'm now going to go unto my Father. I agree, Tyler. Very interesting concept. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay, so this is very, very good. I want to actually dissect verses 10, 11, and 12 and just share what I see when I read these verses um, because Jesus is going to talk this way more in chapter 17. Jesus' great intercessory prayer is, in my opinion, the only scripture that's better than Isaiah. It's the only scripture that's more targeted, more on point, more focused on the center of what matters to us, central to the message that God has for us and to our purpose in growing as his children. And Jesus's great intercessory prayer is the only chapter that I would hold above Isaiah. It is so good. But Jesus is going to go off in his great intercessory prayer about being one with him in the way that he is one with the Father. And it's so easy to just kind of... uh, skip past it because it it's ambiguous to us, and it's kind of like, I don't know, a wisp of a cloud passing by, and you don't really know how to get a handle on it or 
contextualize it to your circumstance or to um, your life situation or to your discipleship or to your faith. It's, it's not necessarily a chapter that we often read and then gain traction in our discipleship to move forward, to step out of bad habits or improve relationships or draw closer to Christ. It's, it's, it's more of like a fascinating, like we're looking up at a big question mark and going, oh, that'll be neat to understand that one day. Yeah. Well, I want to share with you how I understand it and just bear with me. Okay. So chapter 14, verse 10, the father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. How, I mean, we believe we're agents unto ourselves, right? Like I am Justin, I am this body and the works that I do, I'm judged on. I mean, on judgment day, I'm not going to be able to say, oh, well, the devil did those works. So here Christ is saying that the Father is doing the works that he's doing in his body. How can that be? I want to suggest that the key to understanding this is how the pronouns are being used. Pronouns reference a subject, which is an acting player in a relationship. Remember, there's always an acting player and a passive player, a giving and a receiving player. What is that? which is being referenced here in this verse. Not only the pronouns, but also the titles and sometimes names are being used as pointers toward a force, toward an acting agent, toward a subject. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Okay, so when he says, I am in the Father, that pronoun I, is it referencing his body? We know that the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. When he uses the word Father, is he referencing those bones and flesh of the Father? No. No, it's it's a fair question. It's like the question Nicodemus asked of Jesus. Shall I crawl back up into my mother's womb when Christ was saying he should be reborn? It's fine. Our natural impulse is to understand things within the context of the body or the flesh or in a literal i.e. material uh, uh, translation but the answer is no he cannot be talking about his body being in the father's body or the father's body being in his body there is a unity attendant to the process of rebirth which is pointed to by the unity attendant to the process of birth, where in that process, bodies are literally in each other. But the unity attendant to rebirth is only pointed toward by that unity, which leads to birth. The unity in rebirth is a spiritual unity. The unity attendant to the process of birth can contain both the unity of bodies and the unity of spirits, But the unity referenced here between Christ and his Father and us is clearly a reference to the unity between spirits and not bodies. You may say, well, duh, let's go on. Okay, let's go on. To God, there is no difference, though, between spirit and flesh. And so in his speech, his pronouns, titles, and names will switch between referencing spiritual actors and physical actors. DNC 29 explains that the spirit is one thing, 
and the flesh is two things. So that living flesh is still nothing more than spirit. So let me explain this. First of all, let's just go to DNC 29 and read that. That would be good. All right, let's turn to DNC 29. Possibly my favorite section. Hibbada habada jibbada jabada. Verse. Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons to love this chapter. Verse 31. For by the power of my spirit created I them. What is them referencing? Them is referencing those who have been sons of perdition. Of whom he had said, never at any time, in verse 29, have I declared from mine own mouth that they should return. For where I am they cannot come, for they have no power. But remember that all my judgments are not given unto men. And as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and the, that the last shall be first in all things whatsoever I have created I believe, we'll, we'll talk about this a lot more in other videos, but there's a pattern between two players, one at the top of a circle called A, one at the bottom of the circle, which we can label B, going around the circle one time visually illustrates an exchange between player A and player B. Player A is a masculine energy pole, player B is a feminine energy pole. But any, any creative act, and all relationships are creative acts. Anytime you build a relationship, you're building a relationship. It's a creative act. And every time a relationship occurs is one complete circle from A to B and then back from B to A again. And so I think this is what verse 30 is saying. I think that he's saying... If you, if you draw that out, right, A, B, B, A, the first A is also the last, and the last B, at least the last part of the first half, becomes the first part of the second half, right? So the, he's saying, in, uh, 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 as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first in all things whatsoever I have created. This ABBA pattern is the act of creation everywhere. Everywhere an act of creation occurs, you'll find this ABBA pattern. What that has to do with the sons of perdition, that's another video. Verse 31, for by the, this is important, for by the power of my spirit created I them, yea, all things, both spiritual and temporal. First, spiritual. Secondly, temporal, which is the beginning of my work, or the first half. And again, First temporal and secondly spiritual, which is the last of my work. This verse can easily be understood by pre-mortality, spiritual realm, coming to earth through birth, right? That's the first part of his work, to put us into the bodies. That was the beginning of the proposal of the plan in the Grand Council, a third of whom said no thanks to the first half of the plan. We said thanks. We left pre-mortal existence as spirits, came to earth into bodies through the process of birth. First spiritual, secondly temporal which is the beginning of his work. And again, first temporal, secondly spiritual. Now in our bodies, we are to rediscover or remember or have a spiritual awakening. And that is a transition from temporal back to spiritual. 
It's the whole thing about overcoming the natural or carnal man and leading with spirit throughout life. That's the process of being reborn. And if we do that, we will have accepted the second half of Christ's work or his plan, which he says then is the last of my work, speaking unto you that you may naturally understand in verse 33, but unto myself my works have no end, neither beginning, but it is given unto you that you may understand because you have asked it of me and we are agreed. Verse 34, wherefore verily I say unto you that all things unto me are spiritual and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. Okay, we have to understand this uh, in order to really understand this unity that Christ is talking about here in chapter 14, and he talks about even more in chapter 17. We know that there are two realms, right? We have heaven and we have earth. Earth is a material realm, a realm of form, a temporal realm. Heaven is a spiritual realm. Romans talks about the invisible things of God. We know that there is a kingdom of God, an economy of God, a whole busy beehive of God that is not visible to our physical eyes. And then there's what is visible to our physical eyes, and that these are two different realms. But these two realms are actually just one thing in God's eyes. In our eyes, they're two things because we're seeing out of our physical eyes and we're generally, usually speaking from the perspective of what we see from our physical eyes. We have spiritual eyes also, but they're not always open and seeing things. And we're not usually referencing what we're seeing with our spiritual eyes. We're usually, usually when we are in identification, when we're using the pronoun I, we're referencing our body. And when we're talking about things as we see them, we're talking about things as we see them with our physical eyes. That's usually the case with us. And so for, for us, we'll talk about two separate places, a spiritual place and a temporal place. And to us, they seem separate, but that's just because our spiritual eyes are dim. But to God, it's just one thing. So if you think about it this way, think about a circle. Think about a circle that's divided horizontally, and the top half is the spiritual place, heaven, and the bottom half is the temporal place, earth. The top half is an invisible reality, and the bottom half is a visible reality. Okay, so you're the bottom half of the circle. And because you're in the process of being reborn, you're in the process of your spiritualized opening, sometimes you see that your soul is comprised of both your body and spirit, a temporal dying element, which is your body, and an eternal element, which is your spirit. But for the most time, our, our eyes are mostly closed, and we mostly understand ourselves as just our body, in a temporal state that is fleeting and will die, and the eternal things of God, the eternal kingdom, those elements, those things which do not die, we think of as separate from ourselves. But as our spiritual eyes open, as our spiritual, the spiritual aspect of our souls develops and matures and grows, we will, and we learn to identify more and more as our eternal aspect, as our eternal half our pre-mortal and post-mortal undying self inhabiting a mortal temporal part of our soul, then we will begin to see more and more that these two halves are just one thing.
Another way to, to perceive this is that think of forms, all forms, including our bodies, like gloves. And spirit is the hand inside of the glove. That's the difference between my body, which is animated and making this video, and my, you know, 12 times great-grandfather's body, which is probably by now dust again. Not even bones at this point. So the difference in his body and my body is the spirit within the body. If you think about the history of the world, like on a timeline, okay, you got the beginning of time and the end of time, and you, and you think of this timeline, think of it like a literal horizontal, I don't know, yardstick, and on top of this yardstick is dust. And then from, and then you think about like this dust being formed and shaped into new human bodies, into the buildings these new human bodies construct, the civilizations, the towns, the cities, um, the automobiles, the wagons, the wheels, um, the farms, the animals too, right? The, the new animals that are born, everything that's living, you can, th you can see it like a tidal wave starting from the beginning of time on this yardstick with this dust on it. This dust then gets organized and shaped into forms, right? pigs, humans, farms, cities, and they, they rise up, they, they take shape, they become animated for a certain amount of time. And that certain amount of time between when they're born and when they die constitutes the wave. And the wave goes from one side of the stick to the other side of the stick as, as forms are born and then die down again. Okay, so those shapes and forms uh, are the temporal realm, but the force that creates the wave is the spiritual realm. The forms are not organized without spirit. They just, the, their natural state is to disintegrate and dissemble into dust. The only, and so, and so although we are in form, and although we perceive things through our bodily eyes, even that, unbeknownst to us most of the time, even that is due to the fact that spirit inhabits our form. You know, it, often in the gospel we talk about like having the spirit with us, and we think about the spirit being in us and with us as like, this like extra layer of warmth or love or ability to do good. And it is that, but it's also the ability to walk down the street. Without spirit animating our form, we would just collapse and die and become dust again. Spirit, it, the spirit that animates and gives life to all form, to the whole temporal realm, not just us, but the planet and all living forms on the planet. The planet itself is living is is happening is not only initiated by spirit but maintained by spirit the second spirit withdraws from form it ceases its organization and no longer is an organized living form it's like the hand coming out of the glove is the glove going to open the jar of pickles for your wife no 
Only if there's a hand inside the glove can the glove open the jar of pickles for your wife. So it is that there is a spiritual realm and a physical realm, but there is no living physical realm without the spirit being in and through it. And so all physical forms, all temporal shapes, all material elements that we behold with our physical eyes, they are all sustained because spirit is in them. Were spirit not in them, they would not be animated for our physical eyes to behold. We wouldn't even have physical eyes animated enough to behold other moving things without spirit. This is what allows Christ to reference an intangible force using the pronouns I, me, you, and also the title Father in these verses in John chapter 14, in John chapter 17, and elsewhere. This is what is in your body, this force, and in his body, and in Heavenly Father's body of flesh and bones, and what was in the body of my 12th great-grandfather, whose bones are now dust. The presence of this force in all our forms is what makes the Father, Christ, and each individual disciple one. It's not bodies in bodies, except in the act of procreation, which leads to birth. But in the interplay between heaven and earth that leads to rebirth, it is spirit in spirit. It is an intangible force that is threaded throughout the forms. His form, our form, the Father's form. Okay, this force is also, I feel like there's more to be said on that. This force, okay, spirit, which is the power of all creation, is not just in us, but it is us. And it's not just in Christ, it is Christ. And it's not just in the Father, but it is the Father. Although the Father has a form, and Christ had a form, and we have this temporal form, which will become dust again, and then will be resurrected and get a new form. Still, who I am, when I use the pronoun I, it could reference my pre-mortal spirit, which predates this dying form. Doctrinally, I was also something before I was that pre-mortal form, wasn't I? Abraham says, Abraham chapter 3 says, I was an intelligence. Now, there's not a lot of clear doctrine on what that is, but it is possible that that which I was before I was formed as a spirit, which inhabited this body, which was formed for me, which spirit will then inhabit another body formed for me in the resurrection that won't die. Before I was any of those forms, I was something else. And when I use the pronoun I, I could reference that. And when Christ uses the pronoun I, he could be referencing that. And that when he talks about the Father, he could be referencing that element of the Father rather than the flesh and bones of the Father. What do you think? I mean, that same section in DNC that says the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man also says that the Holy Ghost does not have a body. Else how could he dwell in us? 
I mean, it's just so plain. To be in us, and this, this, is it a preposition? This word, this word in is being used all throughout these chapters. And it is factual that in order for something to be in our physical form, it's got to be, it's got to be spirit. It's got to be intangible. It's got to be a wave. It's got to be a vibration, an energy, something like that, okay? Some force. So I, I just offer that up to you for your consideration. Just consider that when Christ talks about him being in the Father and the Father being in him and him being in us and us being in him, these pronouns he's using, he and I, even the name Father or referring to us as disciple, he is referencing this force, this spirit that upholds all life, all material, all living material forms. And that the reason he is able to use titles and names like the Father or referring to us, the people he's talking to, you know, his disciples who are surrounding him. The reason he's able to talk about us being in him and him being in the Father and all of this stuff is because is because he doesn't differentiate between spirit and flesh. Although he's talking to his disciples or, you know, to the separate bodies, Peter, James, and John, He's seeing with both with all of his eyes. You know, we only see with our spiritual eyes some of the time, part of the time. He's seeing with all of his eyes all of the time. And he understands that the disciples he's referencing were spirits before they inhabited those bodies. And he understands that they were intelligences before they inhabited those spiritual bodies. And he's talking to them with this vision of all that they are and were and will be. And so he has free license to use their names, use titles, use pronouns reference in reference to a spiritual, invisible, intangible realm or a physical, physically visible, tangible realm. He's, he's able to do that because he, his spiritual eyes are opened wide enough to do that. This force is also the author of all good works. This force or energy literally shapes material outcomes. It is the predecessor of all temporal forms, the architect and builder of material shapes, including our bodies and Christ's body and the Father's body. It is the spirit in, that is in the flesh, the hand in the glove. It is the erection of the dust along that yardstick. It is the cause that moves all flesh, including the planet and every other material form, and this is how Christ can say that the works he does, the Father doeth. Because the Father, in this context, in quotation marks, references this acting force. And it is the cause of not only his works, but of all works. This is also how Christ, Savior of the world and God on earth, can humbly say that we will do similar and even greater works than he did in his mortal lifetime, because he understands that the cause of all works will continue after his mortal end and that his body is as simply an instrument in that agent's or force's hands as is our body. It is 
spirit that is the author of all creation, not the form of Jesus or the form of Justin or the form of you or any other listener, any other person. The pronouns in verse 12, okay, just to quickly reread it again, he says, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, now is he referencing his physical body or what he was before he inhabited his spiritual body or what he was before he inhabited that spiritual body? Yes, because he is all of those things and he is simultaneously referencing them all at once because his, his taking upon himself mortality was an essential part of the salvific work that he does on our behalf. Um, he, it wouldn't, the, salvific, the work of salvation wouldn't be complete had he not come to earth and taken upon him our mortal experience. And so when he says, he that believeth on me, he is talking about those who believe that Christ came to earth, was born of Mary, died on the cross. Yes, he's talking about all those physical, temporal actions that he took in his physical form. But yes, he's also talking about the role he played in pre-mortality, the role he'll play in post-mortality, and even who he was before that. He's talking about all of it. The works that I do shall he also do. I, the works that I do, he's saying the works that come through me, my physical form. Now he's talking about the works he's been doing in mortality, the works his disciples have watched him do, the healing of the lame, the healing of the sick, the raising Lazarus from the dead. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Christ, that last I, because I go unto my Father, he's referencing his physical form, Elsewhere, he talks about how he's already with the Father, right? And in that context, he's referencing his spirit, which is in constant unity and connection with his Father. You know, in the gospel, we're always saying we want to get back to the presence of the Father. But that's that comment is speaking to our physical bodies, which perceive themselves as separate. The more we're reborn, the more we truly feel like the sacrament is working and that we have the Spirit with us always, we understand that God has come down from heaven to dwell in us and that we're already with him. The transition for someone who lives their whole life with the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, stepping into the celestial kingdom is, there's going to be some changes and some differences, the new resurrected eternal body being amongst probably the most dramatic of them. But for to some extent, it will just be a very smooth and familiar transition because that separation, that perceived separation has already been overcome. That person already understands that they are walking with Christ, that they are one with Christ, and Christ is one with them in spirit. And so that's not an event in the future. That's happening now, and it's being enjoyed now. But when Christ says, greater works will others do than me because I go unto my Father, he's talking about his body going unto his Father, but the works are performed by that power of spirit, by that intangible force that permeates all of that lower half of the circle, all of the earth and living forms on it, all material forms. That spirit, the power of all creation, will remain here on the earth and work through the people, the, the, people, the forms who come after Christ, his disciples. And they do. We read it in Scripture. You know, the Nephi and Lehi in the Book of Mormon, um, Peter goes on to, you know, heal a lame man and raise someone from the dead. 
other disciples have done all the same mighty works that Christ did and more because Christ clearly understood that his form wasn't responsible for any of the works. It was the power that was in him and that that power would be left with the disciples. It would remain with them and would be given as a gift and comforter to anyone who would believe on Christ or the words of his disciples bearing witness of Christ. So look at verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Are you noticing what's included in verse 16? Jesus is going to pray to the Father that he would give you another comforter to abide with you forever. And then he clarifies, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you." There's that word again, that in. So this comforter is going to be in you. Okay, so there we have it in verse 17, confirmation. It just says, the spirit of truth cannot be seen, and we know him because he is in us. So our English word comforter comes from the Latin con or con, which means with. We saw that in the word context and fort, fort or places of strength. So what, when we get the Spirit of God, we are given strength to be with us. It's like the word Emmanuel, God with you. And the Greek word is an interesting word. It's parakletos, and it means an advocate, an intercessor, a comforter, a helper, somebody who is close beside. So para or para, think about the word parallel. So paraclete, is from like the word parallel, it's right next door, and cleat comes from the word kalao, which means to call. In fact, the word ecclesiastes means to call out. The original word for church means to be called out. So the comforter is the one who is right next to you when you call out. That's amazing. You're never alone, never. You might feel alone, all you have to do is call out, and the paraclete or the comforter is already right there with you, strengthening you. Correct. You're never alone. Never. And I would just add to this, totally profound, Taylor, but I would even just add to that, that the calling out doesn't actually, it's not like the it's not like he hurry and quickly comes to you. The calling out is like an opening of your spiritual eyes. The calling out is more for you to place your attention on his presence. You call out for him to come, but really what you're doing is calling out to yourself to open your eyes to see that he's already there. It's not like you call out and he hurry and quickly comes to your side. You call out to redirect your attention to the fact that he has been there and you haven't been noticing this whole time. That's the purpose of prayer. That's the purpose of calling out. He says in verse 20, at that day ye shall know that I am in my Father. There's that in again. And ye in me and I in you. You could connect verse 20 with verse 10, this concept of what does it mean when he says that the Father's in me and dwelleth in me and I am in the Father, what does he mean? 
he gives us some more clarification that in that day you'll see and know that he's in the Father and you are in him and he is in you. It's this beautiful oneness. It's not this separate nature It's or a divided nature. It's a oneness. It's a unified nature. Okay, so there it is again in verse 20, this word in, and Tyler is is emphasizing this word so much, so slowly and so deliberately, and and that's because it's so important, and that's why I wanted to spend so much time talking about it. Yeah, we have the word um, atonement or at-one-ment, the process or outcome of being at one, and I read this as covenantal, that we are now in final and permanent covenantal binding. So he goes on to say, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. You'll notice he didn't say it's anyone who just says, yeah, Jesus is my savior, they're the ones that love me. He says, no, it's the people who have my commandments and keepeth them. Those are the ones that love me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, so this would be Jude, one of his other apostles, not not the Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. He's hit this three times now in this one chapter. Just in case anybody missed the, in the case topic. In missed the first two. And it's interesting that he's not simply saying, I declare to you that I want you to simply declare me at all times. No, it is good to declare the love of God, but it's about doing, or it's a very action-oriented. It's not enough to declare that you're a follower of Jesus, to declare that you love God, or declare that you know Jesus, or that you're a Christian. He's asking us to show that we are. And these words are so interesting. Showing, manifest, seeing. God wants us to give evidence to ourselves, to him and to others, that we are in a relationship. I recommend you finish this episode and watch all that they have to say about this spiritual oneness that exists between Christ and the Father, and it's, which is proposed to exist between us and Christ. And I want to also suggest that just like when we call out and the Spirit like comes to us, but it doesn't really come to us, but our calling out opens our eyes to seeing that it's already there, so likewise is this whole proposal that we be one with Christ. It's it's not that we aren't one with Christ, it's that we don't know that we are one with Christ. And it's not proposing that a physical act occur, it's proposing that a spiritual awareness occur. Not that we physically move toward Christ, but that we spiritually recognize how close Christ is to us. I mean, for me, that is the major lesson of these last chapters of John. Watching him tend to his disciples right before this great torturous event of his own. Watching him heal the dude's ear that gets chopped off. Watching him uh, predict Peter's denial of him three times, but then 
later calling Peter to be the head of his church, like forgiving Peter for that denial, like not giving up on Peter, watching him bear his cross, uh, go to the Golgotha, forgive those who crucified him, and um, you know have his heart break literally within his chest cavity because because he loves us and all without resentment toward us all without being bitter about the fact that it's our sins he's bearing that meekness that of spiritual strength to metabolize suffering and not return it in kind but to return love to those who despitefully use you and persecute you that watchable observable example of Christ To me, all of that testifies primarily, hauptsächlich, in the first place, it testifies of his desperate desire to be with me. It testifies to me that he likes me, even though I contributed to his suffering in Gethsemane and on the cross. That even though I have rebelled against him and do rebel against him, even though I mistreat my children and others, even though I am constantly messing up my relationships with other people and causing harm, whether ignorantly or willfully, the harm is still caused and he bore that for me on the cross. He still likes me and he likes you and he likes murderers and he likes pedophiles. I'm not saying he likes those acts. I'm not saying he liked ever liked any harm that anyone ever caused to another person. I'm not even saying he liked his atoning act. He said he would like it to pass if it were possible. It was a bitter cup. That's not liking something to call it bitter. But he isn't bitter toward me, and he's not bitter toward murderers. I love that story in the Book of Mormon of, of the Lamanite who had murders on their resume and and were forgiven. And Christ liked them. He loved them. He wanted them to repent and change. He was never disgusted by them. He was earnestly desirous to be near them. And I submit that he was near them. And he is near you and he is near everyone on the planet. Nobody on the planet is far or disconnected even in the slightest degree from that eternal element of Christ, from his love. Yeah, his physical form is resurrected. It's elsewhere. He's not physically with us on the earth like he will be during the millennial years. And that'll be nice. That extra component will be nice. But that eternal undying element, the Holy Ghost, the light of Christ, his spirit, that the, the force of his love, the earnest eagerness with which he would attract our agency to choose him, the earnest, passionate, romantic-like desire of a bride or bridegroom just desperately in love with us is how he is always with us and near us. All of us, the worst and vilest of us, 
he is close. He is so close. I would submit he's inseparably close. And that what he's really pleading and begging for is for us to see that. To accept it. To to just see as he sees us. It's, It's not so much a place to go. It's... It's not a physical place to go, but it is a spiritual place to go because if you're not seeing it, are you there? It's something to see, and seeing it is like entering it. And that's what he wants, is for us to behold and see his presence, which is present, happening now, and to see it to the degree that he offers it to see it to the degree that it in it in reality is next to us and exists i suspect there are some dissenting thoughts you know judgments that want to creep up like oh but the scriptures say the spirit will will not always strive with man yeah maybe a portion maybe a portion but But the reason that portion of the Spirit isn't striving with man is because that man isn't seeing and connecting with that portion of Spirit that is there. And that's my point, is that that Spirit is no different than God's love, and it is always there, fully there, full forgiveness, full love is ever there, And the only reason there's disconnect is because of closed eyes, closed spiritual eyes, blindness to its being there, which disallows connection to it, which disallows an increased flow between it and our bodies. That's what those scriptures are referencing. But from God's end, in the masculine way of what, love and power he sends out toward us he is just an ever-flowing fountain of love and it's always next to us and in that sense we're never separate only to the degree that we refuse its entrance into our bodies but that's a different sort of idea than that god is far away and not with us always not in us, and that we are not one with it always. So anyway, I can go on and on and on. I'll stop talking now, but I just wanted to highlight this idea of oneness and how Christ can be referring to oneness and what it is he particularly means. And I just love so much that I don't have to be alone. I don't have to feel alone. And I like the idea that God is always there with me. He is one with me. He's one with my agency. And I may not always be using my agency to sacrifice for him. And which the result of which may be that I don't understand how close he is. I may not understand how near 
and I may not be sensitive to his encompassing, sweet, warm enticings, which would have my agency be sacrificed to him so that he can take that and make something better with it than I could ever make a new creature, like, like a newborn child. That may not be happening all the time with me. It certainly isn't, but, but it can. And that thought brings me like a never ending supply of peace. And I don't have to go anywhere to get it. I don't have to leave my house. I don't have to complete works which make me worthy. I just have to call out and want to see it. And then he shows me. He shows me how close he is. And how connected we are. How married we are. And then when I see it, then the good works start flowing. And then I'm motivated to go out and serve and do good. And I do it peacefully and not anxiously as if my salvation depended on it because him being with me is my salvation. Well, I love the gospel and I love Come Follow Me and I love that we're all doing this together. This is so sweet. See you soon.